I wished I had two or three weeks on this section. We've got two class periods, so I'm assuming that uh, you, you have read this already on the uh, Bible translation. It's, it's, it's such an interesting study, and I hope you'll do some of this uh, uh, on your own as well. Also, uh, before you leave, on the way out, uh, Rick Moore will be in here next Sunday, and he's got uh, some handouts up there. So pick up your copy before you, and add it to your folder before you leave. Okay? And then I uh, think it'd be Rick, and then Rick, and then Rick with a without a K, and then Rick with the K, and then I'll be back. So, uh, the outline's on the front. I ask uh, Tom Board if he would to uh, read Galatians chapter one, Galatians one, verses eleven and twelve. If you want to look at that, Galatians one, verses eleven and twelve. Tom, speak loudly, please. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we read the, the Bible, uh, where did the message come from? Obviously God, right? He said, I, I wasn't taught this. Nobody taught me this. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't dream this up last night. Um, I wrote. I taught what was revealed by by Jesus Christ. So this Bible, you can you can take great comfort in, and this is God's word down to the words that were chosen. Now we talked about all the different types of people. Do fishermen talk like? Doctors, physicians, not usually. They have different words. But God used everybody, the 40 different men over 1,600 years, to reveal in their words, but His message. Uh, and that's the beauty. I mean, how, how could you get all of these different types of men to come together in one coherent uh, Bible, so to speak? Uh, we couldn't do it. Man can't do it. It has to have a, a, a one source, and that, that being God. Now, that being said, was there a, a need for... Who was the Old Testament written to? Jews. Jews, Jews speak Hebrew. Hebrew. So for a couple of thousand years, 1,500, 2,000 years, was there a need for any kind of a translation? No. Not really. Written in Hebrew, you speak Hebrew, we talk Hebrew, let's do Hebrew. Well, things started to change when when you know Babylon carried away people in the you know early six hundreds and then then the, the, the Medes and the the Persians and then the Greeks and the Romans and all of that down to where we are today. So uh, how many of you speak Greek? Oh that's right, none. Uh, how about Hebrew? Aramaic? <laughs> All right, so we see the need, yea, the necessity for the Bible to be translated into languages that we can understand and read and, and that kind of thing. And so we're going to look at, at, at um, in the early 300s when, uh, when, the, when the Jews were dispersed, of course you can go back even before that, but uh, 
there was a, a, a writer by the name of Origen who in 3rd century A.D., so that'd be in the 200s, um, had to uh, translate the, the Hebrew. Uh, today the Bible is, is translated into 2,600 languages, 2,600 languages. And obviously the, the, the most of us or all of us have to rely on a translation. So we want to look at some principles of translation. Now there's a, what's the difference in a paraphrase and a translation? Somebody's opinion in the paraphrase. Okay, paraphrase, you, you can, you can, people try to, uh, well, if it's somebody's opinion, what's the danger of that? It's your opinion and, and you can kind of cut corners and you can make this thing say anything you want to say. But we talked about that on Wednesday night. Um. So we, we have to be careful with that. We're going to talk about some of those things. Um, uh, context. Uh, what, does that, what does that word mean? Uh, um, the meaning of a word or an expression may vary depending on the context in which it's used. We have to take that into consideration in translations. Um, what do you think that means? What's the situation? What's going on in what you're reading? Who's it being oh, written to? What's the message about? All that kind of thing, Don? Use the the word W-I-N-D. It can be wind or it can be wind, depending upon the context. Mm -hmm. How is it used in the sentence or in the paragraph? Right. No, that's true. We're also going to see where... where mm -hmm. uh, well, I don't want to get ahead of that because I'm going to I'll talk about that in the in the 12 and 1300s when we get there in a little bit. I don't want to do that yet. So, uh, I got some just a few examples, but obviously, uh, what what Don brought up is true. But look down at the bottom of page one. Uh, here again, I'm not going to be able to cover every single uh, paragraph here. I'm going to leave that up to you because we don't have enough time. The scriptures use the expressions of sleep or fall asleep. Uh, they can refer refer both to being physically sleeping or death. What determines that? The context, right? Um, in Matthew 28, verse 13, uh, uh, in Matthew 7 and verse 60, they're using two different ways. In Matthew 28, talk about sleeping. You know, dormiendo, sleeping. Um, Spanish. Thanks, um, thank you very much. Uh, Acts 7 and verse 60, it talks about Stephen. Stephen was stoned and he fell asleep. Really, did he fall asleep or was he... He was dead. Okay, so you have to... We have to use some common sense here and context can determine... Um, so sometimes the, the, um, the um, translators can... They'll add a word, like, for example, in some versions, in Acts 7, verse 60, it says, he, he fell asleep in death. Now, when you see in your Bibles, the word, in some of the versions, in death is in uh, italics. What does that mean? Yeah. Not in the original. It's added for the continuity of the meaning, to amplify what the meaning. So, if it says, it does say, Stephen fell asleep. If, if, if the translator says he fell asleep in death, does that do any violence to, the, to that scripture? 
It doesn't do violence to that. It amplifies that. It doesn't add to the, any meaning or any or any perversion of that. You, you see that? Um, in uh, I found this one interesting. Ephesians. Go, go to Ephesians four and verse fourteen. Uh, Ephesians four and verse fourteen. Now this is some. Of, this is one of the, the the kind of things that that translators were faced with. Now there were some that there, one man at least who just took it literally from from the uh, Aramaic or from the Greek and put it straight word for word, and it was, it was almost unreadable. Uh, then a year or two later, he took that and 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 and, and did, did some things we're talking about here. For example, in ver Ephesians 4, verse 14. Somebody read that real quickly. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. In, in, in New King James, it says the trickery of men. Does anybody else have another version there? Deceitful. What is it? Schemes. Schemes. That's a good one. In the original language, the word literally meant in playing of dice of men. Do what now? You know, we, we don't talk like that. But that's what the word literally meant. So the translator, one of their jobs is do not do violence to that, to that scripture, but put it in something we can understand. We understand trickery and schemes. Uh, no one understands in playing of dice of men. You, you just don't. So they translated very carefully what that word meant when they put it into German or when they put it into to, to English or they put it into French or whatever. Uh, another one, in Romans 12 and verse 11, somebody can read that if you beat me to it, Romans 12 and verse 11. Do not be slow in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Okay. Fervent in spirit. Anybody else have another? Not lagging in diligence. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Okay. In the original, it meant to the spirit boiling. So, you know, to the spirit boiling. Do we talk like that? No. Uh, so, what were some of the others? Fervent and what else? Fervent. Um, a glow with the spirit. Okay, uh, we we understand that better than a, to the spirit boiling. So the translators had that's part of their job is to take that without doing violence to it and translate it into words that that particular target language understands. You 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 with me on that? And, and there are example after example after example. Um, uh, Matthew 5 and verse 3. Of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus. Um, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what could that mean? What could that mean? Well, they don't have any money. Or, or, or spiritually, how are they doing spiritually? Very poorly. Is that what it means? So the translators, well, they use poor in spirit, but it means, and I've got it written down here for you, uh, or it could mean mentally unbalanced. Does that, it could mean that. Uh, what that means is that they're not, not satisfying 
their physical needs, but recognizing their need for God's guidance. That, that's, so you have to kind of do a little detective work here and, and see what this means, uh, means to us. Um, now look at the second paragraph. I want to read that one. I think that's an important paragraph. On page two, I'm sorry, page two. In view of these and others, Bible translation involves more than simply rendering an original language word with the same term each time it occurs. Remember that sleep? Fell asleep. They literally fell asleep in the boat. Uh, they fell asleep in death. So they have to add a word to, to make sure you can understand the difference. Uh, a translator must use good judgment in order to select words in the target language that best represents the ideas of the original language. So you, you can see the opportunity for mistranslations, paraphrases, misinterpretations, uh, misinterpretations uh, based on maybe some prejudice you might have. So you have to be real careful with getting reliable translation. Now we're going to go get into weeds here in a minute on how all these things came about. But anyway, right now this is kind of high level. Joyce? I was just thinking of uh, Passover being translated as Easter. That's a problem. Yes. Yes, that was a, a bias, a, a Catholic bias actually, using the word Easter. The word means Passover in the original language. And so we say, well, the Bible uses the word Easter. No, that was someone putting that in there to substantiate something they believe already. The word literally means Passover. That hasn't been That's done a good one. 1611. Yeah, six, huh? 1611 is the last time that was done. King James Version? Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, look at the, at the third paragraph. I want to get to page three if we possibly can today. A translator who liberally paraphrases the Bible according to how he interprets the overall idea could distort the meaning of the text. He may erroneously insert his opinion of what the original text meant. Doctrinal bias can easily color a translator's work. Now, as we get over to page 3 and 4, we're going to see, and maybe at 5 even, I forget now, but um, the, all of the safeguards, the safeguards of translators, I mean, one of the examples is, and this just almost makes a hair rise on your back and neck, when the original translators and scribes wrote the name Yahweh or God, they cleaned the tip of their pen first. They did not want to use the word God with a smeared pen and smear his name. Now that's the people who did it right. You, you can rest assured they did this right. They were checked and double-checked, and it went on and on and on. But I just find that so neat that they would not, out of respect for him, would not uh, even try to have the danger of smearing his name when they, when they wrote these that. These days, people use his name in vain for everything. It's just a common saying. And it just, that, now, that makes my hair stand up. Well, it does. And, and I tell you, the one that gets me is, and, and you're Christian sometimes, and even on Facebook, OMG. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they'll and they'll 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 just forward that on and hit like and little love symbol and all that. Christians don't do that. OMG, oh my God, taking his name in vain. You don't do that. 
Christians do not do that. Um, somebody wrote, uh, turned to Nehemiah 8 and verse 8, and then somebody turned to Acts 4 and verse 13, and just, I mean, I have time to turn them off, so just read that when you get there. This was written, the Bible is written for average people like us. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Okay, read that again. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. A translation that's not understandable. Or a teacher who is not understandable. It's just wind. It's just air. Nothing is taught if nothing is learned. You can take that to the bank 100% of the time. If, if you don't learn anything, the teacher just show it out. So if, if y'all don't learn anything in here, it's on me for just when. Nothing's taught, nothing's learned. Okay, Acts 4, verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of John, Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. These were fishermen. These were just common people, common laborers. And even the people said, these are educated people. How, how can they do all of that? And, and Carol, what was their, what was the rationale? They've been with Jesus. Now, how do we get with Jesus? What do you say? You get in the book. You get in the book. That's how you do it. And this is probably the last paragraph I'll actually read word for word, but I think this is good. Page 2, right before a reliable translation must. I want to get into that. Therefore, a good translation of the Bible makes the message it contains understandable to sincere people, regardless of their background. Clear, common, readily understood expressions are preferred over terms that are rarely used by the average person. And I, this one version, I can't remember what it was now, I copied this. Some ver many versions, at least one version, explicitly stated that notice. We offer no paraphrase of the scriptures. Our endeavor has been to give us a, as literal a translation as possible. As a result, the Bible can be read with ease and the reader can have full confidence that its inspired message has been translated faithfully. That's what you're looking for. Now, there's nothing wrong maybe with studying a paraphrase if you have confidence in it, but that's not Scripture. A paraphrase is just someone, some man, taking the and making a reader's digest. You can study it, but be careful with it. And I always, I don't, is anybody in here beside me, someone's ever said, uh, you know, this simple language, well, um, that's your interpretation. Really? How do you interpret one-syllable words? How do you interpret two-syllable words? It's not an interpretation. What it is, not all the time, maybe sometimes, you just don't want to hear what the Bible says about a topic. There's a big difference. That's your interpretation. No, that's just what the Bible says. I didn't write it. Sure. I think the interesting thing is that those who are um, trying to turn people away from studying the Bible 
will say that it's too complicated. Mm -hmm. For instance, the Catholic Church for a very, very long time discouraged yes. its members from reading the Bible because essentially they knew that if they did, they would find out a lot that was incorrect. That's right. And how many people do we know? I mean, each and every one of us, how many people have we met that are not perhaps even formally educated but know the Bible very well? No, that's right. And it was, I can't remember who the quote came from, um, somebody within the last century or so that said, um, speak with the language, of, or speak with the wisdom of the ancients, but use the language of the people. And that's essentially what the Bible is. Everyone can understand. Everyone can understand. If, if they're sincere. If you're sincere. And you won't. Now, let's get into some, some interesting stuff here on, on page three. Uh, it, it wasn't until the 14th century that the Bible was translated into English. So that'd be in the 1300s. 1300s, first time in English. A lot of the English versions were translated in German. Uh, but so in English, 1300s. And the, one of the reasons is, and Sharon hit it right on the head, the Catholic Church did not want it to be out. Um, that the common person was not supposed to understand it. And they were very violent about it. I'm going to look at a man or two here uh, and talk about that in a little bit. In fact, the uh, first um, uh, translated into Latin in 405. It was Jerome's Latin Vulgate, they, they, they called it. Uh, notice now, in, in, in the about a third of the way down on page 3, it's interesting. There was a man by the name of John Wycliffe. So, don't call him John Wycliffe, I guess you can't, but I believe it's Wycliffe. Uh, it, he, along with John Purvey and Nicholas of Hereford, I love the English stuff. <laughs> Nicholas of Hereford. Uh, Chris of, of Wellington. You know, all, all, all of those kinds of things. Well, this was Nicholas of Hereford, the first complete Bible in English. There were two editions, the Wycliffe Bible, and they were both translated from the Latin text. The first was a literal translation from Latin to English. John Wycliffe did a lot of work in that. It cost him his life later, but anyway. <clears throat> just a year or so later, he did a second edition, I noticed. And uh, it, the focus was on the meaning of sentences and not the mere translation of some of those words that we couldn't understand. So John Wycliffe saw real quickly that, that he needed to make a modification on the first one instead of a literal one word like the, the boiling of, you know, all that stuff we have trouble, trouble with. Um, John Wycliffe was, have you heard the word, word lolling around, lollygagging? Well, the church at that time, the, the mother church, whatever they call those people, um, they call them the lollards. They're lolling around. This John Wycliffe, he's nothing but a bunch of lollygagging people. They really tried to. John Wycliffe died on Christmas Day in, in, in a church service. 44 years later, of a stroke, 44 years later, the Catholic Church dug him up, <coughs> condemned him, and burnt his bones. He was dead. Been dead for 44 years. Um, but John Wycliffe was a great man when he came to uh, uh, translating the Bible. Um, and there were, there were some others, which we'll talk about. Um, William Tyndall and Miles Coverdale and all that. You, saw, you see that in your... But you, go back and Google some of these names and look at that. 
what they did to preserve the Bible, to translate the Bible for you and me. They didn't have all the truth. But they were good men who were seeking it, I think. And, and God, that's in God's hands. God will do what He wants to there. Um, some things that profoundly affected Bible translation. One was the printing press. Who, who invented the printing press? Go back to your 7th and 8th grade. Gutenberg. Gutenberg. Uh, that was a big deal. Before, how did you print all of these copies off if you translated one? Well, guess what? In three more years, I'll have another one ready for you. <laughs> well, that, maybe. That's a little bit of a problem. So the Lord and the Lord rolls all this out through His providence. I need a printing press. Who's going to do it? So Gutenberg invents a printing press. Um, there's a, a scholar by the name of William Tyndall. He was a Greek scholar, uh, and he provided uh, in 1526. Printed it in Europe. He revised it in 1534. Uh, he was ki uh, killed in 1535. So a lot of these men were losing their lives over this. Because they said, do not translate this Bible. Only the hierarchy of the Catholic Church can do that. And they said, we don't believe in all that. Pope's no more, no more than a man like, like, like everybody else. Well, it cost them their lives. And a lot more than this even. Cost a lot of people. Coming to that these days cost us our lives. It could. It could. There was a there was a man by the name of Miles Coverdale. Now this is the very first complete English Bible. And it was in 1535. He died about 30 years later, 34 years later. He died in 1569. And then we come to 1611, which Don mentioned. Um, the King James Version. The King James gave his blessing, if you will, to a group. I forget the number. You remember the number, Don? It was a big group of men um, who... You read seven different stories of it and you've got seven different versions. Right. I've heard as high as 17, 27, I guess depends yeah. on what number, but a group, and, and they clustered themselves away, and all they did was night and day, basically, translated uh, into the King James Version, which is a very reliable version. It's it's not as readable with thou and thy. No one speaks like that today. Uh, thine and and uh, ye and all of that. But it's 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 uh, it's very reliable uh, language or, or translation. Sorry. I have an original copy in my iPad here that is more like Chaucerian English. <coughs> what? Chaucerian, you know, like Chaucer. Oh, Chaucer, gotcha. Right? If you can read it, good luck. Because that, that yeah. original that everybody thinks is the authorized real real translation, you can't read in English because English has evolved to the point where it's that is no longer understandable. English. Right. Right. So what we have today is a King James is actually in its fifth revision. Okay. And then you got the new King James without the these and the thys and the thines. Uh, and a good example, a, a, a word conversation in the, in, the, in the old King James. We know what, we're having a conversation. What did it mean in the King, old King James Version? Fellowship and working together. Uh, a matter, a way, the, your manner of life. The way you walked. So, some of those things have to be tweaked. It doesn't do violence to, to, the, to the original. 
but it has to be tweaked. So instead of conversation, it would say manner of life or, or something to that effect. So you, you see the difference between that and, and, and a paraphrase. Now, I've actually seen this in, in, the, in the London, the Library of London. Of course, it's behind glass. It's, it's, it's a large, it was called the uh, Codex Sinaiticus. You see the root word Sinaiticus? What, what do you think Sinai? that means? Sinai. Sinai. In London, if you don't do anything else, go to the, to the London Library. And it's beautiful. It's in color. There, there's, it took, I don't know how long, they don't have that, how long it took. Um, but they, they found this. It has every single book, a book in the Bible. It was found in a, con, in a, in a convent um, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Do you see the poetic justice there? And to stand there and see that from... Uh, what was the year of that? I, I want to say the 4th and 5th century. I, I may be off a little bit, but just a few hundred years after the last apostle, um, they, they, these men got together and they have every, every book in the Bible except Esther. They, they, they couldn't find Esther in that all of that. It's like 1,300 or 1,400 pages. And they have that bound up pretty in the, in, the, in the London Library, and the we scribble, Americans scribble. They, don't, they didn't scribble then. What do you call that, Michelle? That, uh, Calligraphy. Calligraphy. You know, I, I love people that can do that beautiful old Englishy writing. That's what that looked like. Can you imagine the pains that it took to, to, to put that together? Uh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. The Codex Sinaiticus. Now they also have one called the Codex Vaticanus, so you can see where the root word there, and the Vatican about the same time. Um, and then as late as I was 1948 or 1949, they discovered a little a little shepherd boy was throwing rocks in a cave and he heard something shatter. What was that? You know how kids and rock. Boys don't throw rocks. It's going to get you in trouble most times, too. I can tell you that. Uh, I had to pay for several windows. Uh, mowing yards by throwing rocks and BBs and all that. So they heard urns shatter like pottery. They went in and they found all these um, uh, original within a, a hundred years or two hundred years of the original. Uh, and they call that the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they found some more last year in some more caves. Just last year. It's like it's a series of like, I want to say 56 caves or something like that. We think it was one cave. It's a series of caves. You see God's providence in all of this? And the thing, every single time they come up with this stuff, it agrees exactly with this. How did that happen? We have a mastermind behind all of this. Sure. Um, as I recall correctly, the Dead Sea Scrolls were obtained by the Catholic Church and then keep, kept for uh, safekeeping, as I understand it. No. They were confiscated by Israel. Yeah, I don't think Israel that's Israel right. has had them locked up. Yeah, everyone they they could get. There was a few of them that slipped through some of the illicit dealers and wound up in Germany and England and, and all, but... Uh, 
Israel made sure the Catholics didn't get them. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Sharon. Uh, I don't believe they were involved in that. In fact, the, all of them have just been released last year. Yeah. But the beauty, in fact, I think um, the book of Isaiah was almost entirely intact from the uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. One word different. Yeah. There's only I, one word in it different than from our texts that uh, we've been using. That we have today. And it was a minor, you know, sense type thing. Is it a plural or a singular type yep. word? Uh, you, we can have such confidence as this is the mind of God. I googled that and just seeing the pictures on my computer just gave me cold chills. Just, you know, of course couldn't read any of it, but just knowing what it was. And it, it was so interesting. There were several different pictures of it. You probably did too, and it's very Or some rainy day when, when you can't get out, or it's 120 degrees, like it's getting ready to be, and you got some time. Google some of these men and some of these discoveries, and just let that thing take you where it goes, and it is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You look down and you've been at it for three hours and, and it seems like 10 or 15 minutes. And we got time for everything else. We're all good at vacations. Let's, let's take some time to do some of this. God knows our hearts and He knows where we're spending our time. He does. Was that the first or second? First. first. That can't be. Uh, that's about as far as I want to get today, but uh, um, we, we can go back and talk a little bit. Um, I, I, I know I went kind of fast. I knew that. I didn't want to do that, but does anything jump out at you um, from some of the things we've talked about so far? We'll start with verse um, or page 4, page 5, and page 6 for Wednesday night. I want to get through the first three pages if I could today. Hey, Mitch. Yes, sir. It's somewhere in here. Are you going to, to get into the, the, the uses of the, the thesaurus when you start looking yes, at these Yes, that'll words? be on uh, uh, two Bible study tools. Okay. We're going to get into all that or as that much as we can. It makes a big difference it in does. translations nowadays. It does. Um, yeah, Bible. I think that one's called Bible study tool. Does anybody have that? Uh, I didn't bring. I don't have my. Bible uh, study tools. Yeah, yes. tools of Bible study or something. Lesson eight. Okay, lesson eight. Tools. That's when we'll get into the, the books you need in your library. The basic books you need in your library. Hey, Dad. Uh huh. I don't know if you're going to get to it either, but just maybe like your recommendation for a translation if yes. somebody's curious or. Yes. <clears throat> Um, there are translations that are reliable. There are translations that are that are not as reliable. Now, it, and it's kind of like what Dom said. There's different opinions on this. There's different opinions on this. Um, now, I like the new King James version. It's based, obviously, on the King James only in English that we use. That's not the only one. I have heard that the English Standard Version 
is as close to the original as anything. Then I've heard others say, I don't know if that's so or not. Um, but people that I that I trust and I've read after said the English Standard Version is very reliable. I like it. I have it on my phone. Now here's another thing, too. I have my New King James Study Bible, the Holman, uh, and I study from that, but also read, I'll read out of the New American Standard Version, or by NASB. I'll read out of, uh, I don't, in fact, I don't have an ESV yet. Um, the Old King James, and, and so on. So, and then there are some that are not reliable at all. Uh, Don? I use the interlinear on the King James, New King James, American Standards, and, ES, and English Standards. And when you're using the interlinear and you're looking at, at here's the, the, the English word, here's the Greek word that it came from, here is the root that they get from there, and you look at the four of them lined up side by side, you can see the differences in the, the, the way that one word changes in, in, in coming on down through. I had that one time, but Blue Emu will take care of that. <laughs> but you know, it, it takes a while to, to sort through that, unless you're a retired old man, you don't have time to do no, that. No, you're right, you don't, sometimes. But I, I know what you're saying. And a lot of this uh, new sub Bibles on your uh, cell phone, it, it'll have, you can go to the different versions, and that's pretty neat. I, I, I've got some of that. I just like I just like to be able to touch it and feel it myself. But there's nothing wrong with that, Jim. One of the comments I made on our first class was we um, there's many people who want to bend have God bend to them rather than us bend to what God wants. And the reason I say that is because Nelson Publishing will publish anything you want to publish as far as the Bible goes, taking things out, putting things in, and that's why you have to be careful to go with some of these that you're talking about because depending on the denomination and what they've decided to do this point going forward, it can uh, change context or pull stuff out, put stuff in that you really don't want to have in there. So that was kind of my point with that. No, no, that, these are all good points. Um, I'm going to do some more research on that and I believe we'll have the last two or three classes of this quarter we'll have some time to go back and and uh, delve into that a, a little bit more on, on all the translations. But I, I know at least everything I've been able to study and read and, and, and after, these are awfully reliable. The New Century version is, is extremely clear and, and written like we speak, and, and I believe it's scriptural. Is my it dad, a paraphrase? I've never heard of that yeah, one. My dad's been studying from it for years. He got forced to retire when he was 40 and became, it became his job saying the Bible eight hours a day and he swears that it's, it's scriptural. And what was it called again? New Century Version. I've been using it for the last few years. Okay. He studied out of the King James Version for years and years. Okay. And he, uses, he says it's scriptural. I'll look that up. I, I don't know that one, yeah. honestly. It's, it's as it. clear as can be. It sounds just like it's okay. okay. Well, thank you all. I know we had to rush a little bit. But.